This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? My guest today is Dr. Douglas Ross. Doug holds a PhD in archaeology from Simon Fraser University, specializing in the lives of early Chinese and Japanese immigrants on the West Coast. He's currently living the high life in sunny California, where he's a senior archaeologist at an archaeological consulting firm in Santa, Cla- in Santa Cruz. And Doug was my roommate in university. We've known each other since 1994, uh, when we met in first year in archaeology class or in the dorm. Uh, you lived the floor below me. And Doug was my best man. Doug, welcome to Geek 4. Thank you so much. It's an absolute delight. I feel like this conversation has been a really long time in coming, and I'm super <laughs> excited that it's finally happening. Yes. You and I share lots of things in common. I was saying to somebody recently, like, if I have any musical tastes of any note, it's probably because of Doug. You know, you introduce me to stuff, I introduce you to stuff. And I think we have a similar way that we get excited about stuff. I think so too. And I think I would probably say the same thing about you when it comes to movies. You know, I feel like a lot of my current taste in films goes back to that time we spent together, you know, between 94 and 99, you know, doing little else, but, you know, introducing (laughs) one another to like, you know, world cinema. Yeah. And kids, we did go to class, Uh, but occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we wore out Gen X, the video store highbrow stuff, lowbrow stuff, whatever, we discovered a lot of stuff together too, that we, we had shared passions about. Right. And I think because, you know, those are kind of your formative years, you know, I think a lot of the things that, you know, were my favorite then are still my favorite now, you know, you kind of shape your, your identity and your tastes during those, you know, teens and early twenties. And that carries with you for the rest of your life. I agree. I was talking about this with someone recently and just how, how in high school you kind of get that taste. And, and, and my experience of high school anyways, was I, I definitely have people in my life who are still connected, who I went to high school with, who we shared things. But I also realized that I was learning about things and discovering stuff that didn't quite fit. In university, I felt like I just kind of fell in with people who had if not the same tastes, similar types of tastes. And so, you know, when we would, you know, get Peckinpah films or, or Billy Wilder films, which we both love, it was just, it was a different, it was a different type of experience. Right. I agree. And I feel like it's not until you get out in the world like that, you know, away from your parents' house and start meeting those folks that um, they all come from, from slightly different backgrounds, but they all are open to kind of a lot of the same things. And I feel like all those, you know, yeah, going to the video store, going to the repertory cinema, you know, watching all of those, you know, crazy international films that up until then I had had virtually no exposure to uh, the late night Chinese food. You know, you oh. got to throw that in there. <laughs> um I don't know if I've ever told you this. So um, D- Doug and I and, and our, our circle of friends would go to this uh, restaurant in Waterloo called China Garden, which was there the last time I was there. And the last time I was there, Uncle Mike, the, the waiter was there and he recognized me and he knew what I wanted. Wow. He had your order ready to he go. Had my, <laughs> you, Cantonese chow mein. And I was like, yes, like that's, that's incredible. 
Right. And I don't know how many plates of vegetable fried rice I ate there at like 11 p.m., <laughs> you know, or whenever it was that we went. Often very late. It was a different, different time, but so formative. You alluded to it, um, going to video stores. One of the other things that we would often do is we would take the bus down to Kitchener and we would scour the used bookstores and just finding these little treasures and collecting them and bringing them home. I express my fandom through collecting and learning things about the things I love. That is, that is my fundamental expression of the things that I'm a geek for. And I think you have the same thing. That's exactly what I do. The things that I started doing or the way I started approaching my interest, you know, in nerdy things started with collecting books and collecting movies. Um, and I still do that today, even in the era where everything is streaming, you know, you still want to have a hard copy of your favorite, you know, you know, your favorite films and stuff, or even in the, the era of, um, you know, audiobooks and, you know, in Kindles and stuff, you still want to have that tangible copy of um, the things that really, you know, get you excited. Um, and yeah. so when, when I look at my bookshelves, I'm like, yep, they're all, they're, there's my geekdom right there on the bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. And we also have very eclectic tastes, um, you know, from each other, but also from, you know, we don't just dive into one thing. We both dive into many things. Right. And that's one of the things I was thinking about, you know, when I started listening to your podcast and thinking, well, hmm, I wonder what I'm a geek for. And I'm like, I don't have that one thing. I think I'm more of a jack of all trades when it comes to uh, interests. I mean, they definitely have a central tendency. And I think my central tendency um, is the supernatural black humor and, you know, the history of ideas around human mortality. I think that, you know, broadly speaking, that's what I go for. But within that realm, my tastes are extremely broad and eclectic. And so you're not going to hear me, you know, zeroing in on, you know, kind of ephemera. You know, mm. I'm not going to tell you like, you know, which version of Frankenstein I think is authoritative, <laughs> you know, because I don't go that deep into each thing. You know, I kind of, um, you know, spend some time you know, getting to understand certain topics and then I move on to another one, you know, and it's kind of the collectivity. It's all of these topics and ideas together that, that I think comprise my fandom, as it were. Do you find as you get older, because I mean, everything you're saying is resonating with me and this is why, this is why we've been friends for, for so long. We, we kind of go in these patterns of like, I'm really interested in this and then I move on to something else. Do you go back have you found yourself going back with age? We're now at the age where we can look back on much of our lives. I do go back and I have maybe a recent example. Um, one of the things I was going to say by way of um, maybe introducing where my interest came from uh, was to start with uh, a sleepover I had when, you know, when I was in my early teens and a bunch of us, you know, stayed over at a friend's house and um, they had really cool parents that um, let us rent R-rated movies. Ah. So we went to the video store and we rented a whole schwack of movies and the plan was to stay up all night and watch them. Um, three of the movies that I do remember, um, uh, all horror movies, were um, Children of the Corn, Maximum Overdrive and Witchboard. Um, and that was back in the day when horror movies actually terrified me and which board in particular, I don't know if you've seen this one. I don't know which board at all. 
Okay, it starred um, uh, a, a woman who's a famous model, Tawny Katane. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, the 1980s, she, she was in a lot of music videos and stuff. Yep. Anyway, she plays a, a young woman who um, starts fiddling around with a Ouija board that gets left in uh, her apartment after a party. And of course, it's um, possessed by an evil spirit that starts tormenting her and you know, and, and she and, and her friends have to find a way to, to combat this evil spirit. Anyway, um, that movie absolutely terrified me, gave me nightmares at the time. But I've since gone back and rewatched that movie like last year. I think it was on, you know, some streaming service for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's um, it does not have the same effect that it did back then, <laughs> for sure. Um, it's super campy. It's more funny than it is scary. But it was kind of a nice waltz through memory lane, you know, going back and, and watching this thing that so terrified me as a kid, you know, and, you know, finding that it still had, you know, that it was still enjoyable, albeit in a different way. And you have become kind of fascinated with, how would you word it? Not, not the supernatural stuff, but like the, you know, things and practices about human mortality, as you said. Yeah, I, I would add the supernatural to it. Okay. Um, but um, what's interesting is, is that I was thinking about, again, I was looking at the bookshelf, thinking about my eclectic interests, and I'm like, what is it that draws all of these things together? You know, um, you know, ideas around premature burial, corpse medicine, vampires, you know, witches, ghosts, the devil, you know, all of these things, what is it that, that unifies aside from being supernatural or associated with death and mortality? And what I realize is that they all kind of um, reached, you know, the pinnacle of their significance in Western society during the early modern era, which mm-hmm. is also the era that, you know, you know, the early modern and modern era from kind of the Renaissance to the Victorian era, which is kind of the area that I trained on in archaeology. And so even though I don't study the archaeology of those things, it's that time period. It's how we arrived at the modern world over the last five, six, seven centuries, you know, um, and particularly the darker side of, of humanity during that era. So really, it's, it's, it's the, the darker side of, of the early modern and modern world. It's interesting because, I mean, that's the period in which, you know, science is taking leaps and bounds forward that, you know, there's a... a um it's popularly talked about as kind of this regression of, of religion or faith or whatever. Um, I don't think that that's entirely the most accurate way to, to describe it, but there are these little pockets of really dark, weird things, um, superstition, folklore right. that hang on. Well, and that's what's the, I think the big irony about all of this is, is that we think of the Renaissance and the enlightenment and the Victorian era as being the era of, um, the emergence of right the, the empirical sciences and using uh-huh. evidence-based approaches to understand in the world around us. But ironically, that's the exact same time that you know the medieval witch trials were going on. You know that uh, you know folkloric accounts of vampires in Eastern Europe were appearing, where people were becoming you know terrified of being buried alive. Um, you know, where, you know, accounts of ghosts and hauntings were most prevalent. So ironically, during this period that we think of as being kind of the anti-medieval period, you know, the area where superstition, you know, is overcome by, you know, the wonders of science, it's actually exactly during this period when all of these 
subject matters, including corpse medicine and, and all of these other things are, are flourishing. So there's this, these interesting contradictions going on. Yeah. Can you define corpse medicine just for, for people who don't might not have heard of that before? Right. It's the use of human body parts to treat a range of medical conditions, anywhere from um, pieces of Egyptian mummies to ground up human skull to, you know, um, decanted blood, urine, human fat, you know, for centuries from like the, you know, 15th to 18th century, this was part of mainstream medicine for everyone from commoners to kings, you know, these kind of treatments, you know, coming from the human body were incorporated into mainstream medicine, which again is super ironic, because that's also the time period when Europeans were exploring the globe and were casting indigenous peoples in the Americas and the Pacific as these savage cannibals, mm. when all along, European medical practitioners were engaging in cannibalism in their own right, um, a, you know, a practice that continued right up until the, the 19th century, which is quite fascinating. So hypocrisy, anyone? I can see people um, protesting that kind of medicine. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Well, and can you imagine um, the circumstances under which you would agree to take that kind of medicine? You know, the world was in some ways a very different place where you would be convinced or convinced yourself that, yeah, I'm totally going to you know, drink blood. Because somebody told me that that would, that would cure whatever I had. Yeah, I'm going to wait around the gallows. You know, somebody's executed. I'm immediately going to leap forth and start draining their blood. Yeah. And this is also the time that like medical science is actually expanding and and new things are, are being learned. And yet these superstitious practices are kind of firmly entrenched. It takes a long time for them to, to recede completely. Right. Well, it's interesting because I think this is also a period in which... Um, you know, superstition and medicine weren't as, you know, discreet as they are today. You know, you think of things like alchemy, you mm -hmm. know, which was, was very kind of magical, mystical in a lot of ways, but also practiced by folks who would have considered themselves serious scientists at the time. So I think there's a lot of gray area between what's considered magical and mystical and superstitious and what's considered scientific. I think that, you know, the development of, of what we consider modern medicine today went through a period in which um, those things were considered legitimate. Yeah. And, and in, in, in real tension. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Um, there's this book from the eighties um, called vampires, burial and death by a guy named Paul Barber. And in it, he looks at the folkloric accounts of vampires from the 18th century, you know, accounts where um, graves are opened and the bodies are bloated and ready and it looks like their hair and fingernails are growing and it looks like they're alive, uh -huh. you know, and oh my gosh, this person was buried alive or they've come back as a revenant, you know, as a vampire to, to torture the living and we need to somehow pacify this, you know, living dead or kill it again with a stake or something. And what Barber says is that what these folks are doing isn't necessarily entirely superstition. It's very much a product, you know, to some degree of Enlightenment era thinking where people are, are observing phenomenon in their environment and they're attempting to come up with explanations. You mm. know, why does this corpse appear to be still alive, even though we know it's dead? Well, uh, because it's a vampire that's, that's you know, resurrected and, and is, you know, terrorizing the living. Whereas today, of course, we know that all of those symptoms are consistent with um, 
you know, forensic sciences understanding of how the body decays after uh-huh. you die. And so, you know, to some degree, we think of this as being, you know, super, you know, wild superstition, but in another way, you know, um, illiterate peasants are observing their environment and attempting to identify um, or come up with explanations for why the world is the way it is. Yeah. It's interesting. And it always makes me think when I hear stories like this, it always makes me think like the real lesson needs to be, we shouldn't be so firm in our beliefs that we've understood things correctly. <laughs> we should always hold out the possibility that new information will come to light. Right. And so generations from now, people are going to think, gosh, why did they think of those absurd things when the obvious answer is X, Y, Z? Sure, sure. Um, but in the moment, you think you have all the information and that your conclusions are the correct ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I guess, you know, um, my interests definitely lie in um, kind of the nonfiction realm, you know, the history of these, these ideas around mortality and the supernatural um, and I haven't really been um, gotten that deep into fiction, um, you know, related to all of these themes until recently, which I ah. think I talked to you about um, okay. not too long ago. Um, I've embarked on a, a bit of a project in 2021, you know, kind of a COVID coping mechanism. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I think what this came from is I was watching uh, Guillermo del Toro's key films again. You know, Kronos, Devil's Backbone, oh, Devil's Pan's Backbone. Labyrinth, uh, Crimson Peak. And I was listening to the audio commentaries and watching the supplemental interviews and stuff. And it becomes really clear listening to him talk what a profound influence gothic fiction plays on his filmmaking, both in terms of the development of his narratives and also his visual aesthetic. This is kind of a, a branch of, of literature that um, I was familiar with, but hadn't really delved into much um, because I was more interested in, in kind of nonfiction. Um, and I'm sure this is an area as, you know, a literary scholar, you have a lot more background in than me. Um, but I decided with a friend that 2021 would be the year that I read my way through the key novels of Gothic fiction, um, largely British, some American, maybe mm-hmm. some international. We'll, we'll see where we go. So what have you read so far? Well, so far, my friend and I have made it through um, the mid to late 18th century. So we started, of course, with Walpole's Castle of Otranto, um, kind of generally considered to be one of, if not the first, you know, know, representative examples of the genre. Um, We've read uh, Clara Reeves' Old English Baron, Mm -hmm. um, Beckford's Vathic, uh, Radcliffe's... um, uh, Mysteries of Adolfo, Adolfo. Yeah. and we finally gotten through Matthew Lewis's The Monk, and that's the, the one that you recommended to me yeah. specifically, and now I know why. The Monk is bizarre. It is it, it just ramps everything up to 11. And that's exactly what I was going to say. There are all these authors that came before him and, you know, they kind of dance around all of these issues of you know, rape incest, premarital sex, murder, apostasy. They, they kind of dance around them, but never go there. Matthew Lewis goes, goes there. there. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was, it's quite shocking that in the late 18th century, a novel like that would get published because I think it's still shocking today. Yeah, no, it, it totally is. And I mean, 
Gothic is one of those genres that is just, it's so fascinating because people think they know what it is. And there are some kind of lighter examples. And and I thought I knew what it was too. When you get to it um, and and you now have the, the baseline so all the jokes make sense, uh, Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey is a satire of Gothic. Um, right. And I think if I remember correctly, that's the next book on our good, list as, as we transition into yeah. the 19th century. Right. It's her send up of the genre. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the 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 narrator uh, whose name escapes me at the moment thinks she's in a gothic. And so those are all the assumptions that she makes. But she's obviously not. She's in the real world. But like she her expectations are always there's going to be, you know, a murderous monk down the corridor through a hidden passage. But that's never what happens. No, it's, it's fascinating. And you're right. Like there is this fascination with horror and, and being scared and, and the dark side of humanity that comes out in a very particular way in that period. Um, and people are fascinated by it and it continues on into the Victorian age. I mean, you're, you have uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, you're going to get Frankenstein, Hound of the Baskervilles, all of those novels are kind of extensions of that same idea and being scared little little boys still like to go to sleepover parties and have the snot scared out of them were you there when we went to see blur witch project i don't think so i think i saw that one on my own okay um i, I had this memory recently of uh, i know i went with with chris beckett I don't think I've ever been more scared. We had to go to Guelph to see it for some reason. So we were driving back through kind of the woods to get back to Waterloo. And I just remember driving back going like, I don't like this. Right. And that was the, you know, one, an early example of kind of that found footage genre, right? Of horror movie that since become, you know, wildly yeah. popular with all sorts of films. But I think it was particularly shocking because we hadn't really seen something like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it looked real. It seemed real. Yeah. And they really played up the, the 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 viral marketing. That wasn't even a term at the point, but they were presenting it as if it was real. It was actual found footage, kind of like Cannibal Holocaust from, right. from the, the, the 70s. But fewer people knew that one because it was it was so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it looks like so it looks like we're transitioning in, into the horror movie uh, genre <laughs> here. So maybe we should say a few things about that, too, because I think, again, it's that time period, the mid to late nineties when we were all hanging out in Waterloo that I think I was first exposed to, you know, key examples of all the important eras in horror movies. And I think you and Chris were, you know, the main catalyst for that, you know, so I'm thinking the original silent Nosferatu, Mm. you know, the universal series, you know, the Val Luton, you know, RKO series from the 1940s, of course, the hammer movies from the sixties, uh, yeah. Corman's AIP pictures with my favorite actor of all time, Vincent Price, you know, and then, uh, oh, of course, the Italian horror. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. You know, particularly uh, Black Sunday. I think you, you, Chris, and I watched that together, and that movie still, you know, grabs me today. That one really, that one really, and the, and the Argento stuff. I still, I, I, I have a few of that stuff on VHS, but a lot of it I've kind of lost over the years and not replaced it. And I feel really bad about that. Right. And that's not maybe Suspiria aside. I haven't really gone back to that, um, you know, to those films again, Uh, Suspiria and Uh um, Black Sunday are the two that, you know, that I'm most familiar with that most people are probably most familiar with. And I go back to those ones, but I haven't taken a deep dive 
lately, um, you know, into Italian horror, which would be something fun to go back to. Yeah. I also, um, it, it popped in my, my brain a few months ago when I kind of went down the rabbit trail that this is the dangers of the internet, uh, which we had when we were, when we were hanging out in Waterloo, but it was nowhere near what it is now. And you certainly couldn't get video clips the way you can now. Um, do you remember coffin Joe and the, uh, (laughs) at midnight, I'll take your soul, uh, Mm -hmm. Brazilian horror film, I think. Yeah, that's, definitely one yeah i haven't thought about in many years and you know in fact it's just you mentioning it now jogs my memory but yeah or or what was the film gen x used to rent the the something weird uh uh, label videos and there was one that we watched called the acid eaters that was just so weird and bizarre i miss well and it's it's interesting because um i i have friends that really go for the you know the low brow cheap as hell homemade horror movies Mm -hmm. and i'm i don't know those ones as well as as other people do i guess i gravitate toward you know more of the 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 kind of the classic you know ones in kind of you know the the eras that i talked about you know up through the 70s and 80s the you know the halloweens the exorcists um and even um I've been kind of keeping up to some degree with contemporary horror film Mm -hmm. maybe not as much as i should um, but you know, the stuff that Jordan Peele is doing is, yeah. you know, top notch. Um, I actually live in Santa Cruz where he filmed a bunch of that movie. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, where the lost boys was filmed, I should add. Ah, yes. So maybe it's not surprising that I ended up in Santa Cruz. Maybe I, it was foreordained. Yes. Be careful of vampires. I would say that horror film is going through a real renaissance, you know, um, in recent years. I mean, you know, the witch. You know, all those Korean horror movies, The Wailing, you know, all of those things. Um, It follows, you know, even the the teen sex romps, you Mm -hmm. know, are, you know, are generating, you know, classy, you know, high quality horror movies. I remember when when you and I were talking about making movies uh, at one point, uh, that's another another avenue that we have um, gone down together. Uh, it It was Chris Beckett who said, like horror like it's cheap people don't need to act very well so you don't you don't have to worry about performances paper thin storyline paper thin storyline you you do all the tricks with with the camera at that point blur which may have come out at that point when when he said that to us but it definitely like got me thinking on one level if if i was more artistic if i was more visionary i would have taken that idea and run with it a little bit more (laughs) Um, because it, like it to me, it suggested that horror was ready for that kind of renaissance. And I think like what you, what you've pointed out is there is that fascination with the dark side of, of, of humanity that goes back a lot longer than just horror movies. But I think that's what kind of unifies those for me, both the films, which is where I kind of got my, my initial start, you know, back with the you know, the, the teenage sleepover and stuff, and then transitioning into the nonfiction. I think that's, you know, where the entry point is, you know, the dark side of, of human nature or the, the history of ideas. How did we come to believe what we believe about the world, you know, and how is it represented in art and literature, but also in the nonfiction realm in terms of what people actually believe in the real world and how it influences them you know i'm thinking about you know the 
um, 18th and 19th century practice of like body snatching where um, unsavory people would collect fresh bodies from graveyards to deliver them to medical schools and stuff, or even bodies that were not quite dead, you know, that uh, (laughs) had very recently been alive. (laughs) Right. You know, and, and, you know, the history of, of how that came about, you know, like a really dark era in European and American history, you know, what was it that led people to, um, you know, get involved in these practices, you know, the, the notorious Burke and Hare murders in Edinburgh in the 1820s, you know, where two guys were, you know, arrested and tried for murdering like 16 people and delivering them to the, you know, the medical school. Um, which ultimately led to, you know, the Anatomy Act in Britain um, that legalized the delivery of corpses to medical schools um, from like um, workhouses and mm-hmm. hospitals and stuff. Of course, yeah. the, you know, the, the disenfranchised, of course, getting the shaft into the stick there. They uh, often but, then, do. but then how that that translates into art and literature, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the the Body Snatcher is one of the, the key films in the, the Luton cycle. Yeah. Of films from the 40s based on a Robert Louis Stevenson story. Right. And yeah. I think directed by Robert Wise, you know, ironically, uh, um, I think, you know, who went on to do like things not like that at all, <laughs> um, you know, um, and starring Boris Karloff, of course, and Bella Lugosi. Yes. The two yeah. of them are in that movie together. Um, that's that's one of my if you were going to, you know, um, I don't know if we're going to get to the, you know, <laughs> what my favorite things are, but um, we, we, that's, we that's up there, we you may. know? And, and so that's where in my mind, you know, my interest in fiction and nonfiction kind of, you know, cross paths where, yeah. where real life events. And I think it was largely based that film on the Birkenhair story. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- um, I think, I think you're right. Well, and I mean, like Robert Louis Stevenson also writes Jekyll and Hyde, which explores the dual nature of man. And I mean, all of these questions, all of these, all of these issues are on, on one level, right? Like, how do we rationalize evil? How do we rationalize bad things happening to people? Yeah. The supernatural is one way. The other example I'm thinking about that kind of crosses between reality and fiction is um, the fear of premature burial, Mm -hmm. which you know, really emerged in an era, you know, again, when medical science was still developing and people were still unsure what the absolute signs of death were, you know, how do we know, you know, absolutely that someone is dead, you know, and in that era of uncertainty, there was this fear, particularly, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, that someone could appear to have died um, and be buried, but actually be alive and revive in the coffin. And oh my God, you know, what would happen if, you know, if that occurred? And this was a real life, you know, there's actually a, a book, you know, um, called Buried Alive that I, you know, that came out in I think the early 2000s that I read and it was a real eye opener. People would actually, um, you know, create these like security coffins. You know, there were patents put on these security coffins where they would, um, you know, have a little like, latch on the inside so if you if you awoke to found find yourself you know interred alive you could pop the hatch and the thing would open up from the inside a little bell would have a little little bell pull <laughs> that would ring a bell outside if you were actually like under the ground or something and it's amazing how that fear has stayed right and it's i think it, it probably 
you know, reached its apotheosis, you know, in the fiction of Edgar Allan Poe, of course, who, you know, wrote a story called Premature Burial, but it pops up in a whole host of his other stories. Yeah. You know, the House of Usher, you know, it pops up in, um, you know, and it definitely appears a lot in uh, Corman's Poe series of films. Mm-hmm. You know, the pit and the pendulum, it, it's, you know, plays a, a fundamental role in. Plays a pretty pivotal role in Kill Bill, too. Right. And so I think, you know, it, it you know, and Poe was the master of taking these primeval fears that we have and translating them into these, you know, brilliant stories. But it's something, even though we now, um, although I think there are still debates over, you know, uh, what what is the absolute transition between life and death? I think we feel a lot more secure about those kind of things and our fear about actually being buried alive um, maybe isn't, you know, doesn't reach the level that it did in the 18th century, but still the fact that it can come up with in films like kill bill and be absolutely like terrifying. Uh-huh. Um, and um, there's another movie that I, that I'm thinking about too, um, where a character is buried alive in like, the, like, I think it's during like the Gulf war in the middle East. Uh-huh. Um, who's sure. that like Canadian actor who's like the stud muffin? Uh, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. He yeah. stars in a movie about being. Oh yeah, alive. yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, right. And so those perennial fears that go back, you know, centuries are, are really still with us and can still pack a punch. Yes. Do you want to do some quick fast? Yeah, forward? do it. I'm not sure what I'll come up with, but go for it. Fast, 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 fast. Is there something, Doug Ross, that you are a huge fan of that would surprise people? Gosh, I don't know. My parents would probably be surprised at all of this, um, <laughs> particularly when they... Oh, yeah. Sorry, um, Rosses. <laughs> I am a big fan of tiki bars. Ah. Um, you know, like I'm like like wherever... And, and there's a lot of them in California. So whenever I get a chance, you know, and I, I know they're kind of wrapped up in weird cultural appropriation and, and the like but they're kind of fun. Mm. So wherever I can, I, I go to tiki bars and get the tiki drinks. And, and I guess you can't see it in the background, but on one of my bookshelves behind me, there's a whole row of tiki mugs. Anyway, so I collect the tiki mugs. And in fact, is cycling back to my you know interest in the macabre, one of the tiki mugs I have, which is actually at home, um, is in the shape of Cthulhu. <laughs> That's awesome. So uniting my my two of my nerdy interests, yes. tiki culture and um, the macabre, you know, horror <laughs> literature and the supernatural. I got to say, I love that, like, you're finally getting into the literature because you never seemed interested in it in university. <laughs> right. The fiction. And now I've got yeah. my complete Poe and my complete Lovecraft. And yeah, this makes me happy. What is the geekiest thing you own besides a Cthulhu tiki mug? God. That was going to be my answer if you asked that question. Um, it was the Cthulhu Tiki mug. All right, I'll I'll let you I'll let you have that. What is the latest thing that you have become a geek for? Probably um, Golden Age, 17th century Dutch art. Um, I had actually planned a trip to the Netherlands, which of course got you know nixed in the COVID era. Um, but I'm a real fan of um, 17th century Dutch art, particularly because. I think it was the only part of Europe in that era that wasn't producing primarily religious art because the the dominant Calvinist sect didn't allow uh, paintings and iconography in their religious practice. And so the main um, patrons of the arts, unlike elsewhere in Europe, was not the church. 
it was private citizens, particularly the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And so you get all sorts of, um, you know, secular art in um, the Dutch Republic at the time, um, you know, and my favorite being the body tavern scene. Mm. Um, so that, that would be my latest obsession. That, I like that. I like that. How many things that you were a geek for do you trace back to your friendship with me in university? Most of them. <laughs> I mean, um, not, not maybe not the, the Dutch art, no. you know, and my, my recent interest in, in you know, paint, art and painting in general. But that's interesting but the, because... I'm going to guess one of the Dutch artists that you like, I mean, you, 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 when you wrote to me about this, you said Bruegel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every year when I teach and I haven't taught representative Lit in a while, cause I've moved into academic administration every year when I teach Auden's Musée de Beaux-Arts, I put up the Bruegel painting, the fall of Icarus and make the mm. students get up and look at it. So I feel like our similar paths continue, even though. Yeah. So even when away. we didn't get into things together, yes. <laughs> um, we, we arrived at them through a securitist route. And what's great, you know, for people that don't know his work, he's known for painting these elaborate scenes, commonly of, of peasant life, you yeah. know, um, um, where um, there are dozens or hundreds of characters spread throughout the, the canvas. And you really need to, you know, zoom in to see the individual, you know, things that are going on, you know, it's just dense with detail. Yeah. All these little scenes that play out. It's, it's like a fancy where's Waldo. Right. And there's one in particular that I like called the triumph of death, where like there's like an army of skeletons that are laying waste to the landscape, you know, and and hacking people to death with swords. And it's one of those ones where you've got to zoom in on every corner of the painting, you know, to see all the murder and mayhem that's going on, you know, at the hands of these murderous skeletons. I haven't shared that one with my undergrads, but but one day I will. Doug, if people wanted to reach out and connect with you over weird and wonderful things, how could they do that? Um, well, I'm not like a, a you know a wizard at uh, social media, but you could reach me, you know, through my work, Albion Environmental in Santa Cruz, um, or you know, you could get a hold of me at you know dross at albionenvironmental.com. That would be great. Be happy to hear if there are people that are, you know, equally nerdy about these strange things. I, I've learned that there's people that are nerdy about almost anything. Um, oh yeah, and it's it's delightful, and I love the connections. This has been so good talking to you, man. I miss you so much. Yeah, this is this has been the best conversation that I've had literally in years. And I've missed <laughs> you a lot. You know, any you know any other time you want to talk about you know weird arcane ephemera Abs i'm here for you absolutely well now that i can figure out video conferencing and 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 all that um we can make this happen a lot more a lot more uh, frequently so thanks man yeah, for sure and uh yeah absolutely i always love you man i love you too thank you for joining me on geek four you can follow the show on instagram and twitter at geek four pod or me on twitter at mw boyce if you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.